Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. On today's show, we're diving into stories from the nation's island-based working waterfronts. Businesses that are dependent on access to the waterfront are a central part of Maine's cultural fabric. This is especially true on islands where a high percentage of residents make their living off the sea. Last May, the National Working Waterfront Network hosted a symposium dedicated to issues facing the nation's working waterfronts. It was the fifth in a series of national conversations about the economic and cultural importance of working waterfronts. Maine's long commitment to marine industries has made the state a leader in these conversations, including hosting the second symposium in 2010. The 2018 National Working Waterfront Symposium was held in a seemingly unlikely place, Michigan. Why the Great Lakes? Because the Great Lakes are facing just as dramatic demographic and ecological changes on their waterfronts as their more salty counterparts along the east, west, and gulf coasts. I had the opportunity to attend this year's symposium with several students from College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. These students are involved in a project called Mapping Ocean Stories, where they use oral history interviews as a way to document people's use of the coast. So they attended this symposium with the goal of collecting stories from the nation's working waterfronts. These are the stories, stories of the nation's working waterfronts, that we're covering on today's show. Before we dive into the stories themselves, I wanted to introduce the College of the Atlantic students who conducted many of these interviews and worked hard to pull together this show. We're fortunate to have two of them with us in the studio today, Corinna Gribble and Ella Keegan. Thanks for joining us. So Corinna, tell us a little bit about how you came to get involved in this work. Every summer since I was born, <laughs> I came to Great Cranberry to stay at my grandparents' house on Great Cranberry Island. So I got a taste for growing up on the island, at least in the summer, and having that, that freedom and becoming ingrained in the community that way. Everyone knows my grandparents and therefore knows me. <laughs> very tight-knit and once I got to about junior year in high school one summer I met some alums from COA College of the Atlantic where I go now and we kind of hit it off and I realized that COA was the fit for me and I came the fall of 2016 
and the following fall, I believe, the Mapping Ocean Stories class was offered. And I sounded right up my alley with recording and the working waterfronts. Because by that point, I had actually started lobster fishing part-time as a stern man with my neighbor from so fishing out of Bar Harbor. And I was getting a taste for the working waterfront in the truest sense of the word, actually working and earning money lobstering. And through that class, I got to talk to so many more fishermen and hear their perspectives. And I got the opportunities to go to events like the Maine Fisherman's Forum and the National Working Waterfront and Waterways Symposium and hearing even more stories of the working waterfronts from more than the tiny MDI and outer islands off Mount Desert Island. What do you think the relationship is between islanders that you have known over the years and um, the role that working waterfronts play in their community? Islands as a whole, so that this pertains to the cranberries as much as to a lot of other islands year-round umbridged islands in the Gulf of Maine. The working waterfront, especially the lobster fishery, is kind of the center of it all. It's what really feeds the community in terms of economic funding for people to be able to live out on these islands year-round. There on Islesford is a co-op and a lot of fishermen are on Islesford, but there's also a couple on Great Cranberry as well. And when I was younger, I wasn't directly in the industry, but you know, if you found a washed up lobster pot and it was still good enough to function and you found a piece of rope, you could throw it over the dock and then four hours later you'd be like, look, I caught a lobster. (laughs) That's great. Uh, And as I grew up and now as a young adult, I'm really getting to see the bigger picture of all the ways that the island is challenged and then the way they're they're adapting to those challenges and creating that resilience that is talked about so much. Great, thanks. Um, So Ella, um, you're coming at this from a different geography. Um, So you're from the British Virgin Islands. Um, Tell us a little bit about your trajectory to getting connected to working waterfronts and island communities, which you grew up on one, so. Um, Yeah, so I grew up uh, in the British Virgin Islands on the island of Tortola, which is the main island there. Um, I guess I was always connected to islands growing up, but it wasn't until I came here and started, well, I took the Mapping Ocean Stories class, the same as Corinna and um, and I guess from there I started becoming really interested in islands as communities as um, just groups of people and so since then I've become very interested in um, education on islands and um, working waterfronts. 
Great. So you both and I and one other student um, had the opportunity to travel to the Working Waterfront Symposium last May. Um, And uh, Ella, as a college student who has a foot in a Caribbean island and a foot on an island on the coast of Maine here in Mount Desert Island, what were some sort of big take-home messages for you? I think um, some of the things that really stood out to me was a couple of the themes were um, a deep connection between different islands um, and the interconnectedness of islands and the dependency of islands on their mainland waterfronts um, and that kind of lifeline to the mainland. Um, it was incredible to listen to the interviews and to hear how many similarities between these islands in the Great Lakes and off the coast of Maine to this tiny Caribbean island, which I grew up on myself. That was Ella Keegan, a student at College of the Atlantic who hails from the British Virgin Islands. And before Ella, we heard from Corinna Gribble, also a student at College of the Atlantic, who has roots on the Cranberry Islands. As island kids, albeit very different islands, both of these students bring a personally informed perspective to the stories they collected at this year's Working Waterfront Symposium, in particular to the subset of stories from island-based working waterfronts around the country. Ella and Corinna will help introduce many of the stories we are hearing today from islanders in Maine, Michigan, Ohio, Maryland, and Virginia. As Ella explained earlier, one thing stands out as remarkable in each of these seemingly disparate locations. Island-working waterfronts around the nation have more in common with each other than with their own nearby mainland. At the same time, they are all entirely dependent on their adjacent mainland in order to survive as an island-based working waterfront community. Let's let Ella introduce our first storyteller. To introduce this idea of islands as a waterfront and as a community is Matthew Pricer. He currently works for the non-regulatory group in the Michigan office of the Great Lakes in Lansing, Michigan. He does statewide and regional planning work to protect and restore the Great Lakes and the communities that depend on them. Matt Pricer, as you will hear, describes how Maine's Island Institute inspired the formation of a Great Lakes Island Network and the possibility of an island focus at the National Working Waterfront Symposium. For listeners who may not be aware of the Island Institute, it's a community development organization based in Rockland, focused on supporting Maine's island and working waterfront communities. Um, We became aware of the Island Institute and the work that they do for the Maine islands and coastal communities, and amazing 30-year history and all the different programs and the support they provide for those communities. Um, In the Great Lakes, we don't have anything like that. We don't have an entity like that. Um, we didn't even know that the island communities had no collaboration between them. Um, they didn't know others existed for all intents and purposes. There was no one really um, bringing them together as unique places. There has been some, um, there have been some environmental studies over the years, kind of looking at biodiversity and you know islands as unique places for habitat and rare species and that kind of thing. But not so much the people on them and the communities, and so. Um, we spent a couple years kind of visiting and, and ta- you know, building um, this network of, of the communities in the Great Lakes of islands in so many ways as trying to replicate what the Island Institute does out in Maine and you know, form, creating a network um, of Great Lakes communities that the argument being that they, could, um, they would benefit from talking to each other and sharing information that they have more in common with each other than they do many times with the adjacent mainland. So we are, we are 
past year or two been building this network and um, recruiting, if that's the right word, um, you know, islanders and trying to get people involved and understanding what are the benefits, what could this group do. And so this event became, um, you know, back to why are we here, it became um, just another step in the process that, wow, like this is another place where we can connect islanders to islanders. Um, and there's something about, you know, for me, an island community is um, 360 degrees surrounded by water. So it is a quintessential um, coastal community. Mainland communities, yes, they are, but they're back, they're back, or, you know, half is to the mainland and all the access to the goods and services and the people that that affords. Island communities don't have that. And um, so it seemed like uh, a waterfront, a shoreline, shorelands conference like this was uh, an amazing place to, to elevate the needs of these unique communities. And when um, we said, well, maybe we can, how do we do this? Maybe we can bring some islanders together i didn't want i'm not an islander myself you know I, i'm not going to begin to um to pretend to understand their challenges and what their needs are so we said let's bring see if we can bring some islanders together and um then you know that um, ended up with where we are with um people from um, three islands in the great lakes we've got a couple islands out in maine and then down the chesapeake bay um, in maryland we got a couple folks from there and so kind of for the first time um, bringing people together and you know there's many things they have in common there's many differences obviously every community is different but um, the idea being that they'll, we're going to pose some um, basic questions and have some discussions and they can learn from each other but I think the audience is also going to learn um, about these places and so part of this is also to raise awareness or recognition of these communities. It was through Matthew Pricer's work that a range of people from different islands came to the Waterfronts and Waterways Symposium, including the voices we will hear today. Next, we will play a clip from an interview with commercial lobster fisherman from Long Island, Maine, Steve Train. He will be describing what makes the waterfront important for the community of Long Island. Do you feel there's anything unique I don't think it's so much unique to Long Island as it is to a lot of the main islands. You know that we've we've got those communities that understand the industry. It's it's not a job. It's kind of a way of life. It's what you grow up as. Uh, uh, not everybody wants to go fishing, but the whole community gets behind the people that do. It sustains a lot of the island. There are times where every kid in school is either the son or daughter of a lobsterman or a son of a daughter of somebody that works at the lobster company. Uh, or a lobsterman themselves, a lobster woman. I don't think we use lobster woman. It's lobster men, not like postmaster. Same thing, you know, one or the other. Um, but anyway, uh, so the community is, it's a big part of who we are. And I think that's true on any of the main islands uh, that still have a robust lobster fleet. What is your story with the working waterfront? How did you start out and get to where you are today? Um, I think we got a generational difference, but you had Legos, I'm sure, when you were a kid, right? So my, uh, I'm probably fourth or fifth generation. I haven't chased it back for more, more than four. Um, but 
it's a generational thing in my family. When I was uh, probably five, six years old, when we started playing with Legos, we didn't we didn't build houses. We 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 built boats. We made lobster boats out of them. We could use the little curly things to make radars and spinny things, and we could use one block for a trap. And I mean, and that's what we did. That's that was that's what we wanted to do. We we weren't old enough to get out on the boat. I had my first license at seven. I'd go out with my father, haul a couple traps. Um, but uh, you know, when we played, we played lobstermen. And if we didn't play lobstermen, we played ferrymen. You know, we, we worked on throwing the lines around the post. So. From a very young age, it's part of the culture. When I actually got involved in working waterfront things um, is when the city of Portland, which is very important to us, uh, being an island community off of that city, every lobster that's bought on Long Island goes back to Portland and gets taken out through a wharf. And the city of Portland started rezoning parts of the waterfront and wanted to rezone and wanted to do other things. And, uh, um, so we've got Portland Harbor. There's no place to take out lobsters in Cape Elizabeth. There's only one in South Portland. There's, there's nothing in Falmouth, Cumberland. Uh, you can go up the river in Yarmouth, and there's one place, I think. I'm not even sure they take it out. They might truck them in. Um, so without the Portland waterfront still maintaining zoning for, for a working waterfront for the fishing industry, um, I'm going to have an issue. You know, I, we're going to have to have somebody come down, pick our lobsters, and send, take them someplace else by in the state. I mean, it's a real island. We're not doing it by bridge, and it's not what we want. Uh, we want to be able to, we want to be able to pull into a dock, get our fuel, get our bait, and take out our lobsters. Uh, and uh, I draw too much water to steam to Westbrook. The river is a little too shoal. You know, we don't have a lot of options. If we had a problem, an economic issue with the fishery, whichever fishery happens to be the one we're in, if we couldn't find another one. I mean, we've been fishermen, we've been lobstermen, we've been scallopers, we've been urchiners. We do what we need to do to maintain our livelihood and maintain the health of our community. Uh, and if that happened, if something happened and we couldn't you know, prosecute a fishery of some sort, uh, the city of Portland would still be the city of Portland. The town of Long Island would be a summer uh, place for people to live. So uh, we would adjust. Uh, the island would survive. It wouldn't be the island we know now. You'd have trouble keeping kids in the school and, and uh, uh, maintaining a volunteer fire department because you wouldn't have a lot of year-round people there. Uh, but um, a lot of mainland communities, and it doesn't mean their fishermen aren't great fishermen and their people aren't great people, their community will survive without a fishing industry. The islands are dependent, not solely dependent, but mainly dependent on the commercial fishing industry. Uh, the other part is the city of Portland, even though we get along with them. The state of Maine has granted Casco Bay Lines a monopoly to run from any port in Cumberland County to the town of Long Island, and they run a really good ferry service. But when you get off that ferry on the mainland, you are on the Portland waterfront. You've got a parking garage with a five-year waiting list. Might be two now. It's still a waiting list. The parking spaces aren't transferable. You have to go on and wait for one to open up. If I sold my home, I can't sell my parking space on the mainland with it. Um, there is not a lot of parking on the Portland waterfront, and the city of Portland um, is not receptive to putting more. They want to get the parking just off the waterfront. They're talking about shuttling people to the ferry from a remote lot, which might be great if you're coming up Friday night to stay the weekend of the week. 
but if you're getting off the ferry at 7.15 uh, Tuesday morning to go teach in Scarborough, uh, because we do have that ability. We are close enough that if you're willing to ride a ferry 45 minutes to an hour each way every morning and, uh, and back, uh, you can work on the mainland. But you can if you've got, then got to take a half hour bus and, and, and do everything else. So one of our biggest problems is uh, Portland's working waterfront not accommodating the needs of the islanders. And we're not part of the city of Portland. Um, what I would like to see is a better understanding not just of my island, but whether it's uh, Vinyl Haven, uh, Swans Island, Isle of Ho, Islesboro, wherever. The understanding that we don't have bridges, and so we need access points. We need places to have vehicles when we get to the mainland. We, we don't have a regular car ferry service to an awful lot of these islands. And so if, if the feeling is you chose to live there, you deal with the lot uh, that you've got, um, you know, it's going to change. It's going to become a vacation community. That was Steve Train, a commercial lobsterman from Long Island, Maine, in Casco Bay. Steve Train was being interviewed by Corinna Gribble, a College of the Atlantic student who helped produce today's show focused on stories from the working waterfront in Maine and the nation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Today's show was pre-recorded, so we will not be taking any calls at this time. At this point, let's let Ella Keegan introduce our next speaker. Ella was one of the three students from Bar Harbor's College of the Atlantic who attended the National Working Waterfront Symposium last May with me. At the symposium, we interviewed a number of people who live and work on islands around the nation and asked them to share their perspective on what it means to live in working waterfront communities in a time of uncertainty, especially for islands. A theme that continued to rise in our conversations was the commonality between the mindset of islanders and the challenges island communities face. From there, here is an audio from an interview with Duke Marshall, a market owner, and Mark Nelson, an accountant. In this audio, they speak about transitions on Smith Island in the Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, and the challenges of retaining population and therefore culture. You know, Smith Island's been there since 1608, has a strong, rich heritage, long, uh, very independent-minded people that live there, uh, but we're living in a time of change, and obviously the transition from the older history of who we are to going to a new history of what we want to become is, is a difficult uh, transition and coming here we thought maybe we'd get some ideas on how to smooth that transition over. And how many people live on Smith Island? What's the general sort Roughly of 240, 242 full-time and about 500 part-time. Okay, okay so let's jump into those to those transitions. What's what's happening that is challenging? One of the challenges is a retention of population and the transition from one generation to the next of the culture and the culture being the working on the water. Uh, right now, you know, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy back in the day when fathers were telling their sons to leave the island to go get a better job. Uh, it was self-fulfilling, you know. Now we are living that fulfillment of that prophecy because we don't have the younger generation to take over for the new captains and that type of thing. So. Trying to uh, attract the attention of, of folks to come to the island, that way you can retain its population and retain its culture. And you said that um, it is a, it's been dependent on sort of working on the water. What's been the history of the working on the water? Um, mainly crabs and oysters. 
uh, with some fish thrown in the mix, but the bulk of it is uh, crabbing in the summer months, uh, the Maryland blue crabs, soft shell crabs, uh, and the hard crab, and then in the winter months, uh, oysters. It's not so much that it's declining, it's more that the is the type of work is very labor intensive, Duke mentioned that earlier, and uh, again, it's easier, you can go find an easier job and make more money, so it's not hard to figure out what young folks want to do. Our situation mm -hmm. is more so an aging population, and just use my dad as an example. Um, if he fished 300 crab pots a day, because he's 72 now and he's still working the water, he may be only fishing 100 crab pots a day. So he, so the catch is getting smaller. And then, as my dad, he's 72 years old, still working the water. Um, some of them are will work. We've got a couple in there that's almost 80 and they're still working the water. Um, but also health issues might stop them from working as well. Mm -hmm. And then the younger generations are not there, picking up the slack for the most part. The backfill, that's right. Yeah, the backfill, yeah used to be where generations would transfer you know if I grew up and my father was a waterman he'd give me his boat so it was that so that cycles no longer there my dad always says this it's the independence going out on the water you know making his own living just enjoys being it's that part of the nature and the sea and just harvesting the product I mean he doesn't plant any seeds for that so it's you know and it's the knowledge and the working part of it that's the attraction uh, for my dad. I think uh, for myself growing up in it, it's just a, um, just the way it was. It's, you know, it's something you grow up into and you either you like it or you don't. And I, I love it. So. That's true. Uh, my father-in-law, he went to high school for a half a day. He said, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be a waterman. So he went back home on the noon boat and bought a boat that next week. And he's been on the water ever since. And then we're trying to figure out what Smith Island is going to look like in the future. What you know, is it going to continue to be a working waterman's community, or is it going to be a playground for kayakers and things of that? We don't know. That's the fear of the unknown. Uh, but trying to understand and move in that direction. And then, uh, what are the demographics of the island going to be? Is it going to be? an influx of young people moving back in because they want to get off the grid, so to speak, or is it going to be middle-aged people like Mark and myself who have <laughs> worked on the mainland and now we're, we're now in our retirement years and coming back or whatever. We don't know. And that's what we're, I guess that's the fear of the unknown, but that's also the challenge that we're, one of the challenges we're faced with. Yeah. Duke and Mark are residents of Smith Island in the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Next, we're headed to islands in Ohio. Ohio's islands are more dependent on recreational fisheries than commercial fisheries, but the demographic changes described by these next interviews and the growth of tourism will certainly be familiar to our listeners here in Maine and reminiscent of the Chesapeake Bay stories we just heard. Here again is Corinna Gribble introducing our next speaker. Looking towards the future of islands, here are clips from the interview with Russ Brawl, a retired ship captain, member of the Port Authority from South Bass Island, Ohio, who speaks about the common problems islands are facing. We have about, uh, it, it, the winter populations, well, we really haven't taken the census because it changed around 300, 250, 300. Summer residents, uh, probably about 2,000 because all the seasonal uh, property owners. But we've known to have, like, on a busy weekend, we'll have 15,000 people come visit the island on on a, on a weekend. 
What do you uh, What do you love about the island? I like the wintertime. I like it when the ferries don't run, when we have that isolated splendor, as they say, to quote somebody. We have great ice fishing. We, we, and, of course, in Lake Erie, we have 10% of the Great Lakes water, but we have 90% of the fishery. So oh. we have phenomenal fishing. And so and I, I was starting earlier to talk about our shoulder seasons, where right now we have, as soon as the ferries start running in April, we get all these people from South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, um, Michigan to come down for walleye fishing. And then later, like now later May, we get all these people from down in the southern states that love the smallmouth bass fishing. And we have an incredible yellow perch uh, fishing. Um, they they discontinued, you know, everybody, there was, the past generations had commercial fishing, but the state of Ohio outlawed uh, commercial fishing gill netting back in the late 70s. Now, if you go across the Canadian border, because we're only, we're only like a couple miles from the Canadian border, they still gill net, so, um, and they're more than happy to sell us all the walleye and pickerel that we want to buy. But uh, but we also have to share the lake with the state of Pennsylvania, the state of New York, and the state of Michigan, and Canada. So, you know, when you're regulating fisheries, that comes into us. But sports fishing and the fishing industry is a huge part of our... What have been um, some of the successes that you guys have had in terms of um, protecting the heritage that you're talking about? Protecting the heritage, we're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the money seems always seems always kind of it's it's always about the money. We've we used to be all island island people owned the businesses, but when the profits started climbing, a lot of people from mainland came and basically they come and they just build a hotel, build a swim up pool, bar pool, and then they take their money and leave. They don't raise their children on the island. They don't give back to the community. The challenge is well, obviously you're on an island. Everything's got to come over on a ferry boat. Every there's always it's not. It's not the always cost effective to live on it because everything gets marked up, you know, to, to pay for the freight costs. Um, just when just being on an island, you know, if you want to go, if you want to go someplace, you want to go see a show or a concert, you got to pay the ferry fare or you got to fly in the wintertime and then you got to find lodging on the mainland because you can't come back at night unless you take your own boat over. Uh, so just that's a bit of an inconvenience, but, you know, that's what we choose to, to do. So it's not like it's a hindrance gas prices are expensive but you know people have to make a living you know too on the island even though um and of course having amazon that that changed a lot because now you don't have to go to mainland or have it sent over on the ferry but amazon says that you don't have to pay the freight and blah 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 so that's been a huge convenience but in the winter time our grocery store we don't they have getting fresh produce um you know having fresh meats and things like that just not available so you have to put food by you know you buy in bulk in the fall and um, what are um, changes that you've observed over the, the years? We, we always have this conversation, what, what has changed? But I would guess, you know, more, more money coming off island, people that aren't so community-oriented, just pretty much self-centered on their own personal profits. What do you see as the future of the island? Uh, well, you know, we're... I think, we're, I think there's an, an effort now because we really don't want to have that... We don't want to get that that label as a party island because it's, it's eventually going to drive people away I think um, you know and and the, the, the people with the nice yachts and the, the big money people they don't want to they don't want to deal with that um, the locals don't want to deal with that we don't have the police force to to handle these kind of crowds and, and occasionally it gets you know we get it get could, could get dangerous you know we're going to have the, too many people we can't control a situation uh, if from that um, I, you know, we're, we're trying to have more 
promote our natural resources and and thanks to a few people we are trying to promote more family oriented things we have we have this weird thing that we want to be the key west of the north this is how they market this so we have we have a uh, key west we have a uh, plastic lit up palm trees you know and and why do we have to be why do we have to mark ourselves the key west north or we have a you know the boardwalk which serves seafood you know they're, they're lobster bisque you know it's i don't know why we can't promote what who we are why we have to market ourselves as something different than that so um I think the future is going to be driven by the money. Um, the property values are so high now, we, we don't have affordable living for people that work there. The wages aren't livable wages, and they're seasonal work. So, uh, you know, we, we need to bring a lot of people from the mainland. We bring in a lot of foreign workers, students, which is becoming a little harder this year. Because of the visa issues. Yes. Yeah. 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 That was Russ Brawl from South Bass Island in Ohio. That's the same island that our next speaker is from. Peter Houston, a filmmaker from South Bass Island, Ohio, attended the symposium as part of the Coalition of Island Communities. He discusses the history of waterfront uses in Putten Bay, Ohio, and addresses transportation challenges and the importance of access points for islanders in their mainland community. Houston's vision is for the sustainable growth of the waterfront. Well, right now, our biggest challenge is the water level, you know, and of course the water level has been an issue over the last five years for certain, you know, where it was low and now we're at extreme highs. So when you have extreme highs right now, um, just like extreme lows, it really deters the transportation aspect. If the wind blows in the wrong direction, um, it means that there's no way to get on or off the vessels. Sometimes the vessels can't even get in to be able to load or unload. So that's a huge detriment when your economy is, is built on transporting people for tourism purposes. So th that's probably our biggest challenge. And as far as being able to look towards the future, one of the things that we see as being the key to our future has to be a way to be able to have dedicated transportation to all of the islands. Because right now, other than the, the South, South Bass, Putten Bay, and North and Middle Bass, some of the other islands don't have any regularly scheduled uh, transportation that can be accessed by the public, at, at least not without a, a huge expense. So in order for our islands to be able to, to grow and prosper, for populations to remain stable, we have to be able to expand the transportation access. And the working waterfronts is a direct connect to that because with almost every island, there is a mainland community that is connected in an umbilical cord kind of sense, you know. We, we mostly depend on the community of Port Clinton um, because the, the access points for the ferries are over there. So, you know, when you go to the, to the mainland to go shopping, when you go there to get clothes, when you go there to be able to get your car repaired, you're, you're, you need your boat fixed or whatever it is, you're, you're um, overlapped in so many ways. So that, that whole process uh, of working with a, a a mainland community and the island community is kind of the uh, 
outgrowth that we can see with the with this working waterfronts is how can we kind of grow that relationship, you know? We keep hearing in these interviews about the lifeline that mainland communities represent for islanders. And yet, all of them also speak about the value of their unique island-based culture. One thing is certain, island communities are changing throughout the United States. Before we bring today's show back to some island perspectives from here in Maine, we wanted to share one more story from away, this one from an island in Virginia. Donald McCann, a marine surveyor at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, outlines his job and speaks about the values and challenges of the commercial and recreational waterfront in Fleets Island, Virginia. We live at a place called Fleets Island, which is kind of an island simply because it's 15 feet of a bridge to get onto the island, but it's on the mouth of the Rappahannock River. And so I consider our location to be pretty close to ground, ground zero where there is a nugget of commercial waterfront activity taking place. So I awaken in the morning to the sounds of the workboats firing up, particularly Detroit diesels. They're very noteworthy in their, in their quality of sound. And you can hear them going out to go fish the pound nets. The pound nets, of course, catch much of the menhaden that's used as the bait fishery for not only the Chesapeake Bay fishery, but also for Maine. I believe some of the, the lobster boats, lobster guys use menhaden as well because they're an oily fish. So we have the pound nets, and then we have a little bit later, the boats fire up as soon as uh, the dawn breaks for the crabbers. And then we also have just up the road from us is the center of commercial activity, which would be the Omega Protein Factory, which is a Manhattan Reduction Factory. And of course, that's a big deal in our area because it's been in operation. It's the last facility on the East Coast with regard to the reduction of Manhattan. And the tradition, and as you all know, Maybe, maybe not, but Joshua Reed from Maine actually moved to Virginia to tell those boys after the Civil War how to fish them. And so the town of Reedville is named after a fellow from Maine. So you spend a lot of time with boat owners, commercial, recreational, I do. all kinds of boat owners. Yes. So what do you think this community of boat owners, what do they value in Virginia as a working waterfront in the Chesapeake? Well, the the Chesapeake Bay, is, like every place that we come from, is is dear to their heart. I mean, it is it is a premier estuary, and and uh, enjoying being out on the water. For those people that uh, are, want to, you can find an isolated cove somewhere to, in the evening just to drop the hook and spend the evening, and wake up in the morning as I do with my wife, and there are porpoises beside you as you're drinking your coffee, you know, or watching skimmers going along the placid water or just the fish, whatever. I mean, you, the, so on different levels, the, the, the fishermen, they're making their livelihood, the recreational boaters, just the fact that the bay is such a wonderful resource to enjoy in general, whether you're going to village, visit the quaint villages that are along the waterfront, or if you go to a city, that's the diversity of the bay. So it has so much to offer, fishing, uh, culture, just being able to get away. We asked Don what he sees as challenges to Virginia's working waterfront. 
deficiencies that i see in virginia is we don't have enough public access to the water so we are working on that there have been some areas in which we have been able to kind of reconstitute some commercial areas particularly in the middle peninsula area that may have been in decline so that the, the product can be landed safely uh, for the the work boats um, the waterfront is so important and i think the elected officials, normally very conservative individuals, just don't quite recognize how important it is. So it's easy for them to see um, the tax base return, immediate return, when you subdivide a piece of property for houses, they will get a return. But now you've lost that, you know, the importance of what an industry might be able to do for you. So. I'm not sure that they're dialed in necessarily as to what needs to be done. And they have all these plans out there, but I'm not sure they know how to get where they need to be. So that's, that's kind of a synopsis of my story. That was Donald McCann from Fleets Island, Virginia. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. This is a pre-recorded show, and we won't be taking any calls at this time. So today, we're featuring stories from island-based working waterfronts around the nation. The stories were recorded at the Spring 2018 National Working Waterfront Symposium, held in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The student voices that you are hearing throughout the show are Corinna Gribble and Ella Keegan, both from College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. Ella and Corinna joined me and a third student, Katie Clark, at the Working Waterfront Symposium, where they conducted many of these interviews and helped produce today's show. I am grateful for their time and skills. So far, you've heard from islanders in Maine, Michigan, Ohio, Maryland, and Virginia. We felt like we wanted to bring the story back to Maine for the final section of the show. Maine's coastal communities are deeply dependent on the working waterfront for economic and cultural survival. Our next two stories come to you from Vinyl Haven in Penobscot Bay and Long Island in Casco Bay. Next, Andy Dorr is the town manager of Vinyl Haven in Penobscot Bay here in Maine. He describes Vinyl Haven as having an authentic working waterfront where the Maine economy is lobstering. He describes the impacts of recent gentrification and planning for the reality of sea level rise and increasing storm severity. So I'm from Vinyl Haven, Maine. Um, it's a coastal town uh, along in the mid-coast region of, um, of Maine in Penobscot Bay. Um, it's a year-round island community, unbridged. Um, there's about 12 to 1,300 people that live there year-round, um, and I serve as their town manager. So our working waterfront, um, it's really in, the, in Carver's Harbor, it's at the southern end of the island, um, and when the ferry boat comes in, you're at the western end of the harbor, um, and as you walk east through towards Main Street, um, it's a lot of commercial um, buying stations that support the, the fishing, the lobster industry. Um, there's um, a public wharf, um, parking, dock, tie-up, um, hoists for people to bring their traps on or off the boats. Um, there's a boatyard, um, the only boatyard on the island, um, and then 
as you get past um, that area, I kind of classify that as our more commercial working waterfront area. And then as you get past that, you've got your traditional Main Street. Um, it's got over 30 businesses, uh, mixed use, um, apartments above some of the buildings. Um, there's also another public um, parking lot with a um, dock tie-up for, for fishing boats or for any, any boat, really, um, the punts. Um, and then as you move through that area, you get up again onto a high point where you have a church, a library, more residential um, areas through the East Main Street. What would you say that they really value about living there? Mm. So, um, probably said too often, but this just the sense of community that exists, the support um, that exists for families, um, regardless of the situation they're in or really who they know, the communities really come together. Um, and support people in a lot of different ways um, that I haven't seen when you're in some of the, the, the bigger cities or towns. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the first things that comes to mind. Um, you know, otherwise it's the, just the traditional, original, authentic, authentic working waterfront community that still exists um, in our harbor. If, if it had 200 boats in it, um, there's probably 10 that aren't working boats. Um, so it's a, it's a, still a predominantly, uh, very visibly working uh, waterfront. I guess one of the reasons I'm down here is to talk some, somewhat about our um, planning efforts um, around preserving our Main Street area um, with the inevitability of sea level rise um, and increased potential for increased storm events. Um, and so this past winter, um, a lot of folks in the Gulf of Maine, um, including us, saw storm levels that um, we hadn't seen since the 70s. Um, or maybe again, I think there was one storm again in the 90s. Um, you know, but then we saw almost an equal level again the following month. So back to back months we had storms that um, were pretty close to that 1978 storm event. So um, that was pretty significant you know, while we're talking about um, you know, looking at the vulnerability and having a vulnerability assessment done. Um, through um, an engineering firm we were working with, um, you know, it was just timely. It was unfortunate, but it was a timely event as we're talking about it. Um, you know, so that's something that's definitely in the forefront of our selectmen, um, trying to understand where are we at risk, what are we going to do um, when it comes time to replace infrastructure, and you look at the life cycle of some of those pieces. Um, you know, do we have information now that can inform us as to how do we do we build them the same? Do we raise them? Do we um, get them out of the low-lying water areas that we know exist today, um, assuming that it's going to get worse? Um, so we're trying to um, understand better um, what our risk is um, for our main street, and um, no no one is ready to say that we need to abandon or relocate. But um, you know, of course, that is certainly. Uh, one of the options is, you know, if you can't adapt or mitigate, um, is there a place you can relocate? Um, so those are the three options we have in, in a harbor surrounded by water. Because we are so reliant on one species, um, the lobster, um, any decrease in landings or value um, certainly puts people on edge and becomes a little, um, you know, very scary for us as a community to think about what, what happened, what is next. Um, you know, many talk about it as, as we kind of peaked, I think, in 2012 um, with, with lobster yields in the state. Um, we did as well. Um, 
you know, and so every year since then it's kind of gone down just a little bit each year and um, the price accordingly. So um, it it's definitely something that people talk about. Um, there are no answers for what, what does come next. The, the assumption is that it's tourism. Um, there hasn't been anything um, to try and, hasn't been enough effort to talk about diversifying and finding new new fisheries or new species to harvest. Andy Dorr, the town manager from Vinyl Haven, reflected some concerns about the need for Maine's working waterfront communities, especially on islands, to diversify. Many people in Maine agree that the state's working waterfront communities are perhaps overly dependent on one single species, the lobster. Changes to that population, or even to that industry's markets, could ripple deeply throughout the coast and especially on islands. You may recall that one of the early voices we shared on today's show was Steve Train, a lobsterman from Long Island in Casco Bay. We wanted to close the show out with his daughter, Hattie, who, as an experienced lobsterman herself, offers some hope for the next generation— poised to take leadership in working waterfront island communities throughout Maine and the nation. Here's Ella Keegan to introduce Hattie Train. Looking towards the future of islands, the dependence on not only their own, but of their mainland's working waterfronts was highlighted in individual interviews with father and daughter Stephen Hattie Train from Long Island, Maine. As mentioned before, Steve is a commercial lobsterman, and Hattie, who has also worked on commercial fishing boats, is currently an undergraduate at the University of Maine. Here is a clip from Hattie's interview in which she speaks about her childhood on Long Island, which highlights the dependence of Long Island on the Portland working waterfront. So I grew up on the island with my mother being a teacher, so I learned a lot of the science behind what was going on around me and that definitely sparked a lot of the interest in what was around me and pushed me to want to spend more time on the boat with my dad. My dad was a is a commercial fisherman, primarily lobster. When I was younger he also would fish for shrimp, sometimes be a extra hand on a ground fishing boat and would also scallop. Um, so I was exposed very directly to a lot of fisheries at a young age. Um, at age eight, I got my own lobster license, student license. So I was very much so exposed to the fisheries aspect of the working waterfronts at a young age because we, that's what fishing is, is you rely very directly on your tie to the mainland and to your own home port, even though our home port was the island, not necessarily the mainland. Once I got to middle school and high school, I also had to commute by ferry because we only have an elementary school on the island. So I also got a good taste of working waterfronts that way because every day I would be on the 45 minute to an hour Casco Bay Lines ferry from the island that would port in Portland. And then I would have to go to school from there. So I got both aspects of the ferry working waterfront as well as the commercial fishing working waterfront from a very young age. We have a place right on the waterfront near where the ferry lands in the area that on our island we call Downfront. It would be like the uptown part of the island but there is no uptown downtown. There's two stores, one's only open a few months a year, one gas pump, our town hall, our community center and 
our ferry landing dock and then a dock where uh, Cozy Harbor has an extension that buys lobsters right from the fishermen. And people love to be able to just see that. They, they can see from the ferry dock and see where the fishermen are coming to sell. And it's the concept of the working waterfront that is what draws people out to our island. And that's what then increases sales of the lobster and increases sales at the two little stores we have and increases sales at the tiny little gift shop or of people that are selling artwork on the island brings people to decide to maybe move out to the island full-time and increase the taxes that might be coming to the into the island's budget and increase our school numbers and it all comes from the people that want to come out to the island for that working waterfront aspect. The larger number of fishermen that we used to have will spend summer on the island. They might not be year-round residents anymore, they might not be permanent residents anymore, but they still spend summer on the island and they'll still moor their boats off the island. So we have a lot of people that love to come out to the island because they can see the lobstermen rowing in. They can shoot a text or a phone call to a lobsterman that they know while they're offshore and be like, hey, can you save me a dozen lobsters today? And they're able to get the lobsters out of the crate themselves. And it's because of our working waterfront that we have the population swell so much because people want to see that. That's what people come to the island for. That's what people go to Casco Bay for. One thing that we see a value when we are commuting to Portland is getting to still have an input because Long Island seceded from Portland to be its own town in July of 93, which means they no longer get a say in any decisions that might be made by the city council or by any of Portland's immediate government type decisions but we still are very directly impacted by anything that is decided. So anytime there's a vote and it might be limiting parking access or increasing the Casco Bay Lines ferry tickets or limiting the amount of cold storage for the fishing industry on the wharves or limiting the amount of berths for some of the fishing boats that can't fit on the island because you don't have much access to large berths on the island for a boat, it directly impacts us and we no longer get the say in how to adjust the decisions being made in a way that it'll benefit us. I want to be able to work in a way where I can directly influence Gulf of Maine fisheries and influence the communities similar to the one that I grew up in because I want to keep the fishery sustainable and keep them going. A fishery is the entire livelihood of that fisherman. As soon as you take that away, you take away part of their identity. You take away part of who they are. And as silly as it sounds, because most of them had backup plans, even with the shrimp fishery closing for the last few years, some of my dad's friends were primarily shrimp fishermen. They also have ground fish permits or scallop permits, but the person they were changed when their fishery got shut down for more than a year. And it's really hard to see that happen to people, to see such a prominent 
part of the community and part of everyone's identity just disappear. And I don't want to see that happen with these fisheries that I've grown up with and that I've grown to love. And these people that I know and see as friends and family, I don't want to see them lose who they are because we can't properly understand what we're doing. That was Hattie Train, who lobster fishes out of Long Island in Casco Bay and is also a student at the University of Maine. With her passion for island communities and her dedication to making a difference in protecting working waterfronts, Hattie makes a fitting ending to our show today. Before we sign off, we have lots of folks to thank, as this show was truly a team effort. First, thanks to all of the interviewees who gave up your time at the National Working Waterfront Symposium last May to share your story. Your stories are important. Next, I especially want to thank Ella Keegan, Corinna Gribble, and Katie Clark, all three College of the Atlantic students, for their focus and professionalism at every step of this project. Today's episode of Coastal Conversations was supported by the Island Institute, Maine Sea Grant, and College of the Atlantic. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.